Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10 this morning. We're going to study the, the Word of the Lord. Luke chapter 10, and we're making our way through the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order, and this is probably one of the longest sermon series you'll, you'll ever go with me. I mean, we're doing it five to ten verses at a time. It's, it's a long series because, you know, this is, you know, aside from me teaching verse by verse through the book of Psalms, which is the longest book in the Bible, this would rival that even because we're using four, the four Gospels together, and we're looking at every event that occurred as we can, the best we can place it chronologically in the Bible. And, and uh, we're nearing the end of Jesus's life, as I've been saying, and this is when things are getting exciting. Jesus is now pouring into his disciples, and he's preparing them to, um, to live without his physical presence on the earth. And they need training in that. They definitely need training in that. Jesus is trying to help them to see that they're going to need to walk by faith and not by sight. And much like Yoda was training the, the young Skywalker to walk in the force, Jesus is now training his disciples to walk in the way. If you were here last week, you recall that he sent 72 out the week before, and last week we talked about them returning and what happened. And they were so overjoyed that Jesus had used them to heal the sick and to share the good news of the kingdom of God that it was near. But they didn't expect to happen was the fact that they were casting out demons, that demons were subject to them in the name of Jesus. That blew their minds. And Jesus told them, hey, don't be blown away by that. Don't get focused on the wrong thing. Don't be focused on the horizontal effects of what's happening because we all know that if we get, effect, if we get focused on the effects and things don't start happening, we'll think God's not doing it. Jesus said, don't get your eyes on the effects. Don't, don't get your eyes on the horizontal. Keep your eyes vertical. Keep them looking up. Keep them on eternity. Set your eyes on the things above, Jesus is telling them. He's telling them to get their eyes on the things that would propel them, push them, prompt them to continue to do the work of the ministry. Well, after Jesus reminds these guys about how blessed they are because of what they're being able to see and what they're being able to hear, he encounters a question from the crowd, which is always interesting. You never know what's going to happen when, when questions start coming from the crowd. So let's stand up and we'll, we're going to read Luke chapter 10, this account of of this lawyer that begins to question Jesus. Luke chapter 10, we're going to pick it up in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he, when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. 
Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever, you, whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man, to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. And Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We ask, Lord, that you would help us, each one of us today, to see what exactly it is that you would speak to our hearts about this account this morning. We pray that you would just, by your spirit, divide your word correctly, Lord. Get me out of the way and just be, be seen clearly, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Have you ever tried to witness to a good person? You know the type, the type that says, well, I'm not that bad. What does that mean exactly? Well, I'm not that bad. Of course, they know, they'll, they'll say immediately, well, I'm not perfect, but, you know, nobody is. And they begin immediately to start using relative terms. They're, they're, starting, to, they're starting to compare themselves with, with, they're trying to define the word good by being relative to comparison to somebody else. That's why they say confidently that they fit the bill of being a good person because they're using it relatively. When you ask a good person to define what good means to them, they immediately give you a list of what? Do's and don'ts. Well, I don't do these things and I do these things. To them, good is relative based on their perception of what is good and what is not. The problem is with that, you, you realize, is that the world is filled with all kinds of different what? Perceptions. Take the way that people wear their hair. I, that's a different, so for some people I'm like, wow, that's a different perspective, per perceptive, perception for sure. I'm not sure that I would wear my hair that way. That to me is bad, but to them it's good. The way they dress, the same way. Might be bad to me, might be good to them. It's all relative. I saw a picture of a guy the other day on, on Facebook. This guy had was gauging. You know what that is? That's when they, they, they pierce their ear and then they start to make it bigger and bigger and bigger, you know, and they put, the, and before you know it, they got these gigantic rings that you can see through. I saw this guy gauging on his face, in his, in his cheeks, in his, the front of his cheek here, in his nose. This guy was gauging all over the place. I'm thinking, that's bad. But to him, of course, it was good. It was him, him expressing himself. I don't know what he was thinking, but I definitely don't think it, it was all relative, though. But listen, when eternity is at stake, we can't afford to be relative. We, we can't afford to be relative. We have to be definitive because we serve an absolute God who has absolute truths. There, there's no wiggle room in a lot of these things, and that's, that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, I used to be one of those good people. I used to, don't ask me why I felt this way, but I felt like God was on my side because I was, you know, a, a good person. I thought my good deeds outweighed my bad deeds. Anybody been there before? You, you felt like, well, I'm not so bad. Not really super bad. I guess I'm the only one in the group, but anyway. Uh, yeah, I, I was like that. And, and I really, I, I sincerely thought that I was okay with God based on me, based on what I was doing, how I was living my life. Now, I had no gauge whatsoever to tell you 
what was good and what was bad. I had no way to evaluate my life to say, well, yeah, of course I'm doing better you know, than I am doing bad. I mean, I had no scale to weigh. I just was assuming that's dangerous. It's incredibly dangerous to assume with eternity in mind. Well, I assume that that's the way that God would look at me. I was trying to be a good person. I didn't steal that much. You know, when, when people were nice to me, I was nice to them. But then I was justified when they weren't. It was all relative. I was completely off base, man. The thing that was tricking me was my definition of the word good. I wonder how many folks ponder that word. What does that mean? What does it really mean to be good? Well, Jesus told a, a, a rich young ruler who was pondering this very question. He said this. Look at Luke chapter 18. It'll be on your screen. Verse eight, verses 18 and 19 it says this. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now you might look at this passage and you think like, why does Jesus say it like this? Listen, this is, this is an incredible statement. This is a statement Jesus is making um, that he is deity. He pro the, the man approaches Jesus about eternity and asks him, what good thing must I do to obtain eternal life? Notice what Jesus does. He, he immediately defines the word good. He said, you can't use it relatively speaking. Eternity is at stake here. God won't allow that. Again, he has absolute, he's an absolute God with absolute definition. So what does Jesus do? He defines the word for him. What does he say? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God himself. Did you see what Jesus just did there? He put this guy in a pickle. In other words... You either have to recant your statement and say that I'm not good or you have to believe that I'm God. You see what he did? Jesus never said I'm not good. What he said is no one is good except for God. This is a statement of deity by Jesus to this man and he's helping him define this word good. God is good. The definition of good is God. That's what he's telling this man. He defined it for him very simply. If God is good, and that's the definition of the word, then I am bad. It would be the very opposite of good because I'm not God. You're not God, therefore you are bad. What does that mean? How does, how does that manifest itself in our lives? Through sin. Sin tells us that we're bad. It's what the Bible says, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're bad because we sin. But God is good. And so we're caught in this situation here. We have to accept God's definitions, not our own. What does this have to do with Luke chapter 10? Have to do with anything? Well, that's my attempt to help us to realize that definitions matter. Definitions matter especially when eternity is at stake. That's the title of my sermon this morning. What we find is a man that's desiring eternal life. And it's all about definition, isn't it? He's asking a couple questions. He's asking some things. He's saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him, well, what do you think? The guy quotes a couple scriptures from the law. Love God and love people. That sums it all up. Yeah, 
hey, you answered pretty good. You, you answered rightly. And the man wanting to justify himself because he knows Jesus just put him in a position where, he, where Jesus said, do this and you'll live. What is that insinuating? That he's not doing it. So therefore, he wants to justify himself before Jesus. Well, well tell me exactly who my neighbor is. I mean, he, he, this guy isn't Mr. Rogers. He doesn't know who his neighbors are. He wants to know, tell me, define for me the word neighbor so that I know whether or not I am living that out. So Jesus, being the author of definitions, here helps him understand through a story. Jesus was a master storyteller. He illustrated so beautifully. And in this account, he uses a story of a Samaritan. We know it to be the parable of the good Samaritan. I don't like that. There's nowhere in this, nowhere in this story does it say he's good, but we just put that word there based on his actions. We should actually entitle this the compassionate Samaritan or the neighborly Samaritan. But for some reason, you, you realize God didn't put these headings in your Bible, right? I'm not blaspheming God here. These, these, these are all the headings and the, and the numbers and all that were put in by man. But the point of it is, is that this man was used by Jesus not because he was esteemed, not because he was good, but because he was an enemy. And I'll show you how that looks. It's pretty incredible what Jesus was saying to this guy. Um, I've split this up into four different sections as it relates to how someone might inherit eternal life. The question, the answer, the justification, finally the definition. Let's look at the question at first. He, the, the, it says in verse 25, And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, you know you're in trouble when somebody in the crowd hands you a card with the letters ESQ behind their name and starts asking you questions. Be prepared. You're about to be sued. Esquire, the lawyer. The, Jesus is being approached by a lawyer out of the crowd, and he starts to ask him questions. This is not a personal, personal injury a lawyer, this is no one suing Jesus for a workers' comp because the 72 went out and got hurt and came back. This guy is a religious lawyer. He is a scribe. He knows the law. It tells us here that his motive is to test Jesus. Why is he wanting to test Jesus? Well, there's a couple reasons. One of the reasons is probably because of what Jesus just got done saying. What did he say in verse 23? Look, look there with me. Then turning to his disciples, this is after the 72 came back, Turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see, and what, uh, see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Now, Jesus turned to his disciples privately. That suggests that there was a crowd, that he was in the midst of a crowd as he was talking to the 72, as they were just overjoyed with saying, Jesus, look at these things that, that we were able to do in your name. Jesus says, let me tell you something. And he turns to them privately. Now, when you turn to a group of 72 people minimum, okay, privately in a public setting, it's not super quiet. Like you've got to speak up to talk to 72 people privately in a public setting. Like you can, pull, you can say, hey, guys, come here for a second. And, and then Jesus said, hey, blessed are you. For people long to see what you're seeing. What are they seeing? Jesus. People long to hear what you're hearing. What are they hearing? Jesus. And this man goes, hold on a second. Hold on a second. What did he just say? They're blessed? 
Jesus is the entire fulfillment of what the Old Testament was talking about. Jesus, all, everything in the Old Testament that speaks of a Savior is pointing to Jesus Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the Savior of the world. The majority of the people in Israel, though, are rejecting him. The majority of the people of Israel don't believe that he is the Messiah. They believe that he is a what? A good teacher. A good man. But they don't believe he's the God-man. They don't believe that he's the Messiah, particularly the religious leaders. They're not welcoming Jesus with open arms, folks. They know the scriptures, and they are rejecting Jesus Christ, even though he's doing what the scriptures said that he would do, that he would heal the sick, that he would um, cure, cure the lame, that he would cause the deaf to hear, the blind to see, the dead would rise. Jesus was doing all these things, all as authentication to who he was. If they were to look at the word, and they were to look at the things Jesus was doing, they couldn't deny that he is fulfillment of these things. And yet they were resisting him. So much so that they wanted him dead. They were trying to entrap him. That's why this guy is here. I, I don't know if the, the religious leaders had people follow Jesus around. If they planted people in crowds when Jesus was there. If they heard Jesus came to town and if they... You know, immediately they went and flocked to that place so they could entrap him. But they're trying to trap him now. Again, they've rejected him as Messiah. That's not even a question in the mind of these people anymore. Is he Messiah? The, the answer is no to them. And this man here, being there, he is there to trap Jesus. But I have no doubt that there's questions in his mind. Seeing what Jesus did, hearing the powerful words that Jesus spoke, there's no way that he couldn't be doubting what he was saying. And notice how he approaches Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? This was a working society righteousness based on works and works alone what must i do because everything all your righteousness was based on what you were doing it had nothing to do with grace this was not a gracious society hence the reason jesus uses two jews in his story that aren't merciful because they aren't merciful people they aren't fulfilling what god told them to to be they're not gracious to one another it's all works oriented it's straight works what must I do, he said to Jesus. This is a question that people are still asking today, isn't it? What must I do to inherit eternal life? I have to do something. Listen, our culture is asking the same question today. What must I do? It's in the polls. Pew Research took a poll and they found that nearly one-third of Americans, 29% to be exact, believe eternal life depends on one's actions. How you live your life. Being a good person. 29% of the people they polled believe that. 30% believe it's by their belief only. And that was segmented, not just having faith in Jesus Christ, by the way. That was faith in all different kinds of religions. 
There was more than one way, they would say. 10% believed that it was a combination of belief and action. And listen, nearly one-third said, I don't know. I have no idea how to obtain eternal life. Is that crazy? In what some would say is ancient scripture that isn't relevant today, why are we still asking the same question? What must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? Because the scripture is relevant in every area, in every culture, at all times, from the beginning of time to the end. It will always be relevant. Not relative. Relevant. It can apply into my life today, and it can apply in, in, in somebody's life 2,000 years ago, as well as it did 4,000 years ago in somebody else's life. It never changes. It's always the same. These are God's definitions. This is how God defines himself to us. We don't have the right to change that. When there's a culture in our world today that would say, well, I don't like the way that marriage is defined, so I'm going to redefine it. I don't like the way that you know, relationships are defined and, and that, that you know, the Bible says that we can't have premarital sex. I don't like the fact that you know, the Bible says this or that. That's, these are ancient teachings. We've evolved, really. Really, we've evolved. Why are we still asking the same question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? We've not evolved. The truth stands at all times, time and space. It'll stand forever in heaven. It is relevant. And we are asking the same question this man was asking. It's not found in doing. Inheriting eternal life is not found in doing. It's found in receiving. It's not what must I do. It's who must I receive. Who must I receive? The gospel tells us that we can't do anything to inherit eternal life except for believe in the one who came on our behalf and took our pain, our shame, and paid the price for our sin, Jesus Christ. It's by his blood that our debt is paid. It's by his life, his death, his resurrection that you and I are justified before the Father. It's faith in him and him alone. It's not in works. As Paul would say, lest anyone should boast. There is no working your way to God. This man believes that he knows the answer to this question, though. But he's asking because he's interested in Jesus to weigh in on this so that he can come against him. So that he can accuse him. So that he can show the people that Jesus Christ is not the Messiah. That's his whole point here. He's testing Jesus. You can no doubt imagine, all ears are open. The question's been posed, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We find Jesus give the answer in verse 26. He said to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbors yourself. And he said, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. I love how Jesus throws, uh, how Jesus answers, uh, he throws this guy back, the, the answer, the question back into this guy's court and says, you tell me what you think. You tell me what you think. Essentially, uh, who cares what I think? I want to know what you think. 
You tell me how you think. What does the scripture say, he says. He points to him in scripture first. But then look at, and how do you think it reads? In other words, how do you interpret it? That's really the issue with scripture, right? We have the truth, and then we have the interpretation. Scripture is true, 100% true. Our interpretations of scripture sometimes are not. And so Jesus doesn't, doesn't just lay it out there and say, well, tell me what you think. What do the scriptures say? But he also says, and how do you divide the scripture, by the way? How do you interpret what it says? Because that's as is important. How you're applying it to your life. Rather than, I love the, how Jesus is witnessing this guy. Rather than automatically telling this guy what he must do, he wants to know what he believes. He wants to know how he can relate to him. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Listen, when you're witnessing to people and they start asking you questions and you know that they're testing you, what do you think about you know, hot topics in our, in our society? What do you think about gay marriage? Tell me that. I don't know. What do you think? Tell me what you think Scripture says. Rather than telling them what you think it says, why don't you let them tell you what they think it says. Oh, now you have an advantage. Now you understand what their mindset is. Now you can teach into it. You can take God's word. You haven't immediately built a wall up. This is why Jesus did this. He's interested in this man's soul. And he knows, I can speak into his life if he'll answer the questions. Rather than me tell him what he must do. We're really good at telling people what they must do, aren't we? Oh, you have to believe in Jesus. Oh, no, that's all wrong. You have to do it this way. <laughs> Whoop. Wall went up. Lost audience. Come on back. You'll never get them back. There's incredible, incredible skill in what Jesus is doing here. Anointed by the Holy Spirit, Jesus is being directed to hear what he says. And I would suggest that that's the way that we should witness to people. What do you think? Tell me what you think. And then respond in the way that Jesus responds. He let him answer his own question. What do you think? And how do you interpret it? Well, the scriptures say that I should love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, with all my mind. And love my neighbor as myself. This guy quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5. In Leviticus chapter 19, I think Leviticus 19, 18. I lost my place in my notes. I was getting crazy up here. Deuteronomy 6, 5 and Leviticus 19. This guy understands the law and even how to summarize it. He is right in what he's saying. Jesus said that himself. He said, listen. Someone else came up to him and tested him and said, tell me what the most important commandment is. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbors yourself as the second. All of, uh, upon all, these two, all of the law and the prophets hang. This guy summarized correctly. He understood the scriptures. To love God with all your heart. The Greek word cardia, the center of emotion, desire, and affection. To love God with all your soul, the psyche. This is a person's being and uniqueness with all your strength. 
Itkus is the Greek word, referring to the driver will. And finally, with all your mind, the center of the intellect. To love God with all of that. Everything that you are. And then to love your neighbor as yourself. We love ourselves. That's why Jesus said it that way. We, we love ourselves above all things. In fact, our culture today propagates the love of self. Self is God today in our society. Make a better version of you. Serve yourself. Get Do whatever you have to do to be happy. It's all about you. No, it's not. Love God. Love others. Where are we in the equation? Jesus tells this man, you have, you have spoken correctly. Now, here's where the tough thing comes in. Do this and you'll live. How masterful the Lord is. It's one thing to know God's word, but it's an entirely different thing to live it out. Jesus didn't say, quote this and you shall live, did he? Because it's not about what you know. It's about how, what you apply in your life. There are many, many Christians that can quote the Bible from front to back, but not many of them apply it to their life. The smartest people in the world can quote the, the words of the Scripture and yet not live it out in their life. Jesus said it's not enough to know here. What you have to know in your feet, in your hands, in your mouth, in your mind. You have to know the Scripture enough to apply it to your life and walk it out in tough circumstances and situations to love your God with everything above all, in all circumstances, in every situation, no matter what you're going through, that you're loving God and that you're loving people and you're selfless. It's not enough to know the Word, to be able to say the words. You must apply it to your life. You have to live it out. It's kind of what James was saying, right? Faith without works is dead. He's saying it's not enough to know the Word. Knowing the Word is great, but if you're not walking it out, if you're not living it out in your life, then your faith is dead because the evidence of your faith is your works. The evidence of the fact that you're living out your life for Christ is shown in the way that you're living your life. It's, it, or the, the way that you, how much you know about Scripture comes out in your life. Jesus tells this guy, do it and live. Now, it's interesting. Jesus turns, this guy turns to Jesus automatically. Notice, Jesus has hardly spoken. And this man now wants to justify himself. With his own words, he's, 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 he, he, he's, he, he is essentially accusing himself with his own words. He goes on, he says, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who's on trial here? Who's the one being tested here? Not Jesus. Jesus turned this entire situation around by simply saying, what do you think? What do you think? People like to express themselves. They like to tell you what they think. And man, can we use that as a tool for witnessing? If we would just listen. 
how did you arrive at that thought? What's your source of truth? Rather than me telling you like, no, you got it all wrong. The Bible says this. How did you come up with that truth? Like, what, how did you come up with what you're thinking there? Like, where, where did you get that? Well, I don't know. I probably heard it somewhere. Do you think it's safe to base your entire eternal life on something you don't even know where you got it from? How safe is that? <laughs> Jesus is brilliant, man. Of course, he's God. But he's showing us how to witness to difficult people. This guy is not there to be Jesus' friend. He's there to test him. This man came to Jesus to test him, and the one being tested is him. I love that. Notice this man is assuming that he's doing the first part, that he is loving God with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind. He's not asking, how do I do that? He's asking, who is my neighbor? He thinks he's already doing that. He thinks he's already loving God with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind. If you're here this morning and you think that, I'm going to tell you, you're an heir. You're an heir. We strive to do that. But we don't do that perfectly. And that's the only way you can base your salvation off of your works is to do it perfectly. There's no way that we can do that perfectly except in Christ. Except in Christ. Only Jesus can do that in our lives. We're powerless to love God this way, guys. And my guess is that every one of you would testify to that fact, that I'm powerless, even at times in my Christian life, where I'm not loving God the way that I should, with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, with all my might. I want to. That's my desire, but I'm not. But if you were, and if this guy were, he wouldn't even have to ask the next question, who is my neighbor? Because... In loving God, if we're loving God that much, we will love everything that He loves. And He loves us. He loves you. He loves the world, the Bible says. Not just some of the world. He loved the whole world that He sent His Son. The entire world, every single person on the face of this planet, He loves. And if you're loving Him with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, you will love them without a shadow of a doubt. No questions asked. No matter how you're being treated, no matter how people, you know, are, are, are relating to you, you'll love them. Who is my neighbor? Well, Jesus gives him the definition here in verse 30. In a story, he tells him a little story. A man was going down to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he talks about being robbed and stripped and beaten and all these other things. And, and all of a sudden, two of God's servants come along, a priest and a Levite. Both of them pass by, and then the Samaritan comes by, and he sees the man... It says he had compassion on him. He set him on his own animal. He took him up to, to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out his own money. Two days' wages, he took out and he put it on the table and he said, I'll pay for him, whatever it costs. If this isn't enough, I'll circle back through and I'll pay you whatever else I owe you to a stranger. He, started to he took care of this guy. He nursed him back to his health. Verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Jesus is defining who this man's neighbor is in the story of the Samaritan here. Who, he, it starts out, this man was traveling down from Jericho, rightly so. Jericho's about a 3,000 
foot drop from Jerusalem. So literally, it is down. It's a 17-mile hike. It's a very dangerous journey. It's very rugged terrain. There, it's essentially in the middle of, a, of two hills, you know, where you have all kinds of different places and caves and things that robbers could hide out at, and they did all the time. That's why Jesus used a relevant story. He said, you know the road from Jerusalem to Jericho? That road? A guy was going down there by himself. Immediately, you, you can almost hear the crowd, what an idiot. What's he doing going down that road by himself? What kind of a moron does that? You can't go down that road by yourself. What are you thinking? And then you could almost hear the hardness of heart. That's what he gets. And he made his own choice. Why would he do that? I mean, that just... That, that would be like walking down Columbia at 2 a.m. and saying, I got lots of money and I'm unarmed. I got lots of money. I mean, that's just stupid. Don't do that. You're asking for trouble. You're asking to get hurt, man. This is what his listeners are hearing and they're thinking, man, this, guy's, this guy shouldn't be traveling alone. And of course, they already know what's going to happen. Yeah, he got beat up and stripped naked, taking everything that he owned. Of course that, but, but I wonder if they knew the next part. That two of God's servants, a priest and a Levite, both of these men would serve in God's temple. He used them because apparently that was a usual route for a priest and a Levite to take that road. But they wouldn't concern themselves. Now, they have a duty to be merciful in these situations. Adam Clark said this, priests and Levites are mentioned here partly because they were the most frequent travelers on this road and partly to show that these were the persons, from, the persons who from the nature of their office were most obligated to perform works of mercy and from whom a person in distress had a right to expect immediate aid and comfort. And their inhumane conduct here was a flat-out breach of the law. Jesus is saying, God's men didn't do what they were called to do. They weren't exhibiting mercy. Why? We don't know. There's, there's a, a gazillion different excuses why. Why well, didn't want to get blood on my clothes? I had to go to work. I, I just didn't have time. I was, I was running late. Man, if that guy's dead and I touch him, I'll be defiled. Well, what kind of excuse would you make? We do it too. We pass by people in need and we're, oh man, I just don't have time to talk to them right now. Avoid. Woo or, or whatever the case might be, we're, we're good at excuses. Jesus is saying this guy made some excuse. These guys made some excuse to avoid this man. They just avoided him all, at all cost. And in so doing, they, they broke the law themselves. But a Samaritan came along. Now, you can hear the gasp of the crowd when he says Samaritan because the Jews and Samaritans hate each other. They're not friends. They're not working together. They live very close to each other, but they hate each other because the Samaritans are half-breed Jews. And the Jews, the Jews look down upon them because they're half-breeds. And they said, oh, a Samaritan? Really? But this guy that got hurt is a Jew. He's coming from Jerusalem. He, he's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. 
And so that would suggest that he, would, he was a Jew. Now, Jesus is using the enemy. They're mutual enemies, by the way. But he's using an enemy to illustrate his point of who my neighbor is. A Samaritan came by and he saw the guy in need and immediately had compassion upon that man. Immediately, his, his emotions were overtaken. He looked at that guy and he had pity on him. Like you and I do when we drive past a car accident or we see somebody on the side of the road that's broken down or something and you think like, oh man, I feel bad for those people. I'll pray for them as I keep going. Or should we stop and help? You let the Lord tell you what to do. But it says he had compassion, literally great affection and pity. The Jews weren't expecting that the Samaritan would stop and listen and, and help this man, but he did because he felt compassionate. And he took care of his wounds and he got him on, a, on his animal and he took him to an end and he paid for all the, all the expenses. What a guy. What a result of compassion. And Jesus says to the lawyer, so which one of them was his neighbor? And the man replied, the one who showed mercy. That is the definition of neighbor, friend. He's telling the man, the man can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. Can't even bring himself to utter the word, and he, but he says, the one. The one that showed mercy. Exactly. So what does Jesus say? Go and do likewise. Now, what's the entire point of this? Is Jesus saying that you can find salvation in works? Is that what he's saying? Go and do it? He keeps saying, go and do it, go and do it. Why? The point is, if you go and do it, you'll find out you can't do it. The entire point of this passage is for Jesus to show this man there is no way that you can do enough to inherit eternal life. No way. As you try and love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, as you try and love your neighbor as yourself, i.e. your enemy, you will fail. But it will point you to needing a Savior. That's the point Jesus is coming to. You need a Messiah. You need a Savior. And His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. He's pointing this man to Himself. Go and do it. See how it works out for you. The moral of the story is this. If you think you're going to stand before God justified by what you did, you'll find yourself walking away from the conversation realizing that no one can be justified by what they do, but only by what they receive freely. The only way to be justified is to believe and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. He is the only way, and when you receive Him well, then you have the ability to love as you're called to love. It's the only way. He's pointing this man to himself. If you're a Christian here today, you're called to love God and to love people. That doesn't go away because Jesus fulfilled the old covenant in you. Doesn't, you, know, you can say, well, I can treat anybody, anyone the way I want to because I'm forgiven, I'm justified. That in and of itself says that there's something wrong there. There's a disconnect. We are called to the gospel of love. Jesus said love. And in fact, he said love would be the primary uh, um, you know, symbol of God's people working together and the world would look at that love and go, wow, there's something different about that. 
that we would, that's how they'll know that we are his, is by our love for one another. It's all about love in the Christian life, guys. We're still called to love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. We're still called to love our neighbor as ourself. We are called to be sacrificial in everything that we are. If you're a Christian today, I want you to be reminded of that. We need to walk in compassion towards people. We need to love them where they are. We need to help them grow along their way. And sometimes people need to be shook up, and that's okay. But you just make sure that that's the Lord telling you to do that. You make sure that you're just doing your part and you're loving people as God tells you to love them. The next time you walk past a homeless guy, maybe don't look at him with disdain. But maybe look at him and say, here's a man in need. And God maybe would put compassion in your heart to stop and help them. Let me tell you something. You don't know their story. But I tell you, you they do have a story. And if you would take a moment and, and, and listen, if I would take a moment and listen, I promise you we would be broken at the stories of these guys. Many of them veterans. Many of them you know, caught up in just difficult situations that they allow their circumstances to take control of their life. And now they're trapped. If God's people don't have compassion and don't have mercy and aren't gracious to the world, who will be? He's calling us. He's calling His church. He's calling the believers in this world today to be loving, to minister the gospel in love, and to do it in such a way that it would be like Jesus himself here loving these people. So if you're a Christian here today and you're not doing that, hey, the altar's open. You come to the Lord and you say, Lord, I, want, I need to love the way you love. I'm opening myself up. Only he can fill you with that kind of love. And that love, I'm telling you, flows out of, an, out of a place of devotion for him in your own life. As you devote yourself to him more and as you get to know him better and you're desiring to know him more, as you're loving God, his love will, will overtake you and it will flow through and you will love people. If you're here today and you need to do that and you're not doing that, you need to just go to the Lord this morning. Charles Spurgeon said this, and I close with this. Let it never be forgotten that what the law demands of us, the gospel really produces in us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. For the story that we find in this account, Lord, of a man who came to test you, and yet he was tested. He came to put you on trial, and in a very simple fashion, Lord, you put him on trial. You put us all on trial this morning, Lord. We can think that we're doing pretty good. We can think that you're lucky to have us on your team. And that we've overcome so much, and yet we can grow cold like the church's Ephesus did, Lord. They were a machine. They were robots. They had the service of God down, but yet they were doing it without love. Lord, that, let that not be said of this church, of these people in this room, Lord. We need to be filled with your love today. We need to be overflowing with love that comes from devotion from you. God, I pray that I just even confess my own attitudes at times, Lord, and my need for you to fill me today with this kind of love that I would love you more and that I would love people more. Lord, fill our hearts today. 
If there's anyone in this room this morning that doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, has never experienced that, and you're trying to work your way to God, my prayer is that this morning that you have heard and seen that there is no way for you to do that. The only way that you can be in right relationship with Jesus is to receive Him this morning. If you need to receive Christ this morning, if you need realize that you know you're you thought you were a good person and yet you realize this morning that that definition is skewed it's totally uh, relative to the world around us and you've been comparing yourself to others and you thought like well I'm pretty good would you just reach out to Jesus today would you receive him as your Lord and Savior is there anyone here this morning that needs to I'm just gonna ask you to raise your hand that wants to ask Jesus into their life as every head is bowed, every eye is closed, we're just asking, is there anyone here that needs to receive Jesus, wants forgiveness for their sins, eternal life, wants to make Him the King of their life? Anyone at all? He's calling to you. God bless you. I see you. Is there anyone else? Anyone else need Jesus this morning? Just going to make Him Lord of your life. You're going to say, He's enough for me. One more time. It's the best decision you'll ever make in your life. Well, for the one that raised your hand, if you would just repeat after me in the quietness of your heart, Lord Jesus, I come today turning away from my life and I'm turning to you, God. I want to receive you this morning. I've tried to work my way to you and I realize this morning that I can't. I need a Savior. I believe you're that Savior. Come into my heart this morning. I'm laying down my life to you, Jesus, crowning you king. I believe that you died for my sin, rose again from the dead for me. I turn away from my sin and repent, and I want to live in you today. Make me a Christian. Jesus' name. If you pray that prayer, it's not really about the words, it's about the attitude of the heart. All of heaven is rejoicing, the word says, because you were lost and now you're found. And for the rest of us here today, as we sing in this last song, let my life be like a love song. May you just make this your prayer to the Lord. Let's stand. As always, the altar is open if you want to come do your business before the Lord. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.